This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Daniels as C-3PO, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, R2-D2 as R2-D2, and James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. Introducing Chewbacca's family, his wife Mala. His father, Itchy. His son, Lumpy. With special guest stars, Beatrice Arthur, Art Carney, Diane Carroll, The Jefferson Starship, Corman, and an animated Star Wars story on the Star Wars Holiday Special. Good morning. It is May the 4th, uh, 2020, uh, Monday. My name is Stuart Parker. This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. And as you just heard, it's our special Star Wars episode. So today, we're uh, going to be having a panel discussion of um, three hardcore Star Wars fans about um, the giant, sprawling, incoherent mass of... um, movies, cartoons, video games, etc. that uh, have been produced in the Star Wars universe since 1977. Uh, Before that, though, uh, the third uh, Green Party federal leadership contestant to come on our program will be up for a short interview. Uh, Dimitri Lascaris is Uh, Like Alex Terrell, the last one we interviewed, a socialist, an eco-socialist from Quebec, uh, former director of the Quebec Green Party, long and illustrious career, uh, first as a um, commercial lawyer in Ontario, then as a... uh, pro bono, uh, charity-oriented lawyer in Ontario. Uh, Dimitri will be back after this show 
because I'm afraid we packed in so much Star Wars that we didn't really have enough time to give Dimitri a fair hearing. And so while um, we're scheduling that, uh, let me also put this other commitment out there. I will happily cover any of the Green Party leadership candidates who um, have not yet uh, come on our program in the interest of balance. Uh, it seems like we're covering this race in a little more detail than I planned to, so we might as well make it fair. Anyway, uh, thanks for uh, joining us this beautiful uh, sunny Monday morning here in Prince George, and uh, sit back, enjoy some green politics, and after that, enjoy some critically informed Star Wars commentary. Happy May the 4th. We're broadcasting on CFUR 88.7. And with me is uh, Dimitri Lascaris, a lawyer, journalist, and activist based in Quebec. Since 2016, he's confined his practice to pro bono work and has joined the Real News Network as both board member and correspondent. Following David Murner and Alex Terrell, he's the third of the Green Party federal leadership candidates I'm interviewing on the program. So thanks very much for coming on the show, Dimitri. Thank you for uh, having, giving me an opportunity to uh, engage with you in a lively discussion, Stuart. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's, well, okay, so we'll try and keep it lively. Um, so the first thing that struck me is you, sir, so Alex Terrell, leader of the Green Party of Quebec, uh, is a candidate. You serve on his board. You're a director of the Green Party of Quebec. Um, how how has this shaken out? Has this complicated anything? Well, uh, I avoided any complications by resigning from the shadow cabinet and from the executive committee of the Green Party of Quebec before I launched my campaign. Uh, there is a statement, in fact, on my website about this uh, nobody seems to have noticed it, but that's okay, uh, because I didn't. I wanted to avoid these complications. Well, that seems that seems a good move. Nevertheless, I'm going to press you a little bit about Quebec more, because as a British Columbian, um, I think many English Canadians, especially those of us who read Ricochet, look at Quebec, and we're very excited that there is what seems to be an eco-socialist party in the legislature in the form of Quebec Solidaire. Um, why, as a Quebecer, did you affiliate with the GPQ rather than Solidaire? There were a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is that Quebec Solidaire, by the way, I have a great deal of affection and respect for Quebec Solidaire. Uh, and if they weren't sovereigntists, uh, I'd be a big fan. So I have, I have reservations about uh, the separatist leanings of Quebec Solidaire. I'm not going to say that I have a hardcore attitude towards this. Uh, I understand the aspirations for uh, sovereignty of the Quebec people. Uh, I, I, I can understand why they might feel it sometimes uh, to be hamstrung by a federation, uh, many of whose provinces don't necessarily see the world in the same way that they do. Uh, but at the same time, I, I am committed to federalism, and I think that it would be much better for this the provinces to stay together, including Quebec, within within the federation, than to than to separate. So, not only for the people of Canada, but for you know Quebecers in particular. So ultimately, that was the reason. But also, I I have to say that Alex, uh, Alex approached me and he asked me, 
uh, to serve on the shadow cabinet uh, shortly after I moved to Montreal from Ontario in early 2018. And Alex did something which, uh, which, which caused me to have a great deal of respect for him. Uh, back in 2016, when I was the shadow cabinet member for justice in the Green Party of Canada, I brought forward a resolution supporting BDS. Uh, and he was the only leader of a provincial party who came out publicly and quite assertively in support of that resolution. Uh, and that's when I first got to know Alex. And so that, after that, you know, we developed a relationship of mutual respect. Uh, so that also played a role in my decision. Well, this is actually, uh, this is really interesting. Um, so as a British Columbian and as us coming out of a Western populist tradition, like I know why I as an English Canadian want to keep Quebec in. If I were not an English Canadian, I can't imagine why I would want to remain imprisoned by these yahoos uh, in, in various ways. So, um, but that's one of the things that's really interesting. Like it takes being a central Canadian to be an actual federalist. Like we out West never have to figure out if we're federalists uh, because we're, we're English and that question hasn't reached us yet, except with these very silly cosplay separatist movements of sort of Confederate war reenactors at the Canadian tire. But um, as, so it seems to me, if you're part of the Alex Project uh, to the extent that you came on board, to the extent that you support BDS, um, it seems to me that the Green Party of Canada took an obvious liberal turn after the end of Jude, Joan Rousseau's leadership, beginning with Jim Harris, but continuing up to the present day. Um, my relationship with the party, I, I thought, I don't know how you could turn it back in the other direction, how you could make it a left green or a red green party. Um, there's now, I guess, um, 17 years of history, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of provincial parties, elected MPs, elected MLAs. Um, how would you propose, like getting the leadership is just the beginning, how would you propose to turn the Greens into a left party, supposing you got the leadership? Well, first of all, I think it's important, it's important to understand when, when one talks about a party, whether it be the Green Party or another party, these are not monolithic organizations in which there is unanimity about stuff. So I'm going to I think it's a very important question you ask. I, th I think a, a recent poll is very instructive that was done by Forum uh, polling last year. Uh, and what it showed was the following. I think these are quite interesting numbers. And this is something that I sensed was the case being a member of the Green Party of Canada and having been very active, being the shadow cabinet. It, this poll found that uh, in the Liberal, the Greens, and the NDP, the following percentages had a negative view of capitalism. Liberals, 45%, so a little less than a majority. The Greens, 60% of the Greens had a negative view of capitalism and 64% of the NDP. So a slight, you know, modest difference between the NDP and the Greens. On the question of whether people had a positive view of socialism, the Liberals, interestingly, were at 74%. That was a bit of an eye popper for me. The Greens were at 69%, so a little bit behind the Liberals. And the NDP were at 85%. So only two parties 
in only two parties was there a majority of people who had a negative view of capitalism and a positive view of socialism. And those two parties were the Greens and the NDP. So it's important when you talk about the Greens to understand that there is a divide between the base and the leadership. I've been saying this until I'm blue in the face, Stuart. Okay, what the leadership does and says is not necessarily reflect the base. This is also definitely true of the NDP. There is a, a strong appetite for socialism within the base of the Green Party. And my task as a leadership candidate is to convince people that I'm going to respect that, that desire to see a party emerge that becomes a true champion of socialism. That's something that the NDP abandoned some time ago. They don't have the courage of their convictions at the leadership level, even though the base is strongly committed to socialism. So I think this is a great opportunity for us, you know, to become the champion of the left in, in Canada's parliament. Well, this is certainly this is certainly a thing I try to do uh, in my time in the Greens. Um, there's uh, there's a couple of structural factors there that get in the way. One of the interesting characteristics of Green parties, not just in Canada but globally, is that they have the highest ratio of voters to members. That um, a smaller proportion of the people who vote for green parties, and you, you can go anywhere, you can go to Germany, and you find the same thing. A smaller proportion of the, of the voters choose to join. Now, only in the United States has this been solved through the primary system. So, institutionally, like, what can you do to turn those green voters into participatory green members who help to set the party's direction? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I hadn't, actually wasn't aware of that statistic. I'm going to have to... And it's been true for about 40 yeah. years. Like, it's a crazy, stable stat about green parties, unlike most stats about green parties, which just go all over the place. Yeah. Well, with, without, without having known that, what I would say to you, and what I continue to believe, is that the way uh, to move the party to the left is start putting forward policies that the party has not championed in the past, and that would appeal to people who are sympathetic towards the principles of socialism. And so one thing I'll give you just very quickly, some things that mean a great deal to me and that I think have a great deal of appeal to the base of the party, not necessarily the leadership. First of all, we have a, a, an, a, an obscene level and growing level of inequality in this country. So I would favor uh, substantial dramatic increases in the top marginal tax rate. I would even go so far as to say, and this is something that nobody in Parliament seems to be even talking about, the whole idea of having hard limits on wealth accumulation. So actually saying we're not above a certain level of net worth, we're just going to impose 100% tax and that's it. Uh, you know, I think we should eliminate entirely uh, favorable treatment for capital gains. Uh, I think we should make it illegal for Canadians to access tax havens, just make it outright illegal under no circumstances. So I go on and on about this. You know, I think that inequality is an issue that matters a great deal to the Green Party net base. And the Green Party has not done a good job of articulating a real plan and an aggressive plan to deal with the crisis of inequality. And one other issue I'll mention is militarism. You know, the Green Party has been relatively, the leadership has been relatively uh, deferential to the foreign policy of, of Canada, which is overwhelmingly uh, a cheap imitation of United States foreign policy. And United States foreign policy is hegemonic. It's imperialistic, that's what it is. And it, and it has shown an absolute and utter contempt for international law and human rights over a period of decades. So I think that we should begin to articulate, this is something that I think the Green Party of the United States has done much better than we have done. We should articulate a very vigorous 
intelligent and humane internationally law, international law oriented critique of Canadian foreign policy. So for example, you know, under no circumstances would, uh, uh, you know, should a Green Party uh, uh, support uh, Canada's inclusion in NATO. I think we should get out of NATO. I think we should dramatically decrease our, our, our military spend. And I think we should actually have a conversation about the complete demilitarization of this country. Uh, I think we should be talking about uh, imposing sanctions, not only upon the state of Israel, but upon the, upon the Saudi autocracy, one of the most monstrous human rights violators on the planet. Uh, and I could go on and on. You know, our country has allied itself uh, with Egypt, with the dictatorship of Egypt and so forth. So that's another way. And, and that's that not all of that is not meant to be exhaustive, but there's no, a set it's, of it's, policies. It, no, I, and it's really interesting, right? Because uh, we have a limited amount of time. Um, and I'm very, I find it very interesting. Those are the places you, you, you sought to go. I grew up uh, in Sven Robinson's writing association in the NDP. And these are the priorities, certainly, that, that uh, the, the socialist project within the NDP was focused on then. And I can see a real direct sort of intellectual lineage there to the politics you're offering now. So because we have to shortchange you because of Star Wars, uh, you'll be coming back to uh, talk about some of the other policies that matter. But I really want to thank you for joining us and helping to introduce green British Columbians to the choices that are before them. Thank you very much, Stuart. Pleasure to be here. All right. Thanks a bunch. You are listening to Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George on CFUR FM 88.7. For past episodes, go to CFUR.ca. So today, folks, is May the 4th, and in recent years, May the 4th has become a Star Wars holiday, uh, the play on May the Force Be With You. Uh, we now have May the 4th as a time when people who appreciate some aspect of the vast generation-spanning, decade-spanning, continent-spanning Star Wars phenomenon uh, talk about their shared or perhaps even oppositional interests in it. Uh, I've assembled a panel to do just that. Um, we've got uh, James Douglas on the line from Wells, BC. He's a Northern BC-based filmmaker with Barker Street Cinema, as well as the public programming lead for the Barkerville Historic Town and Park. Rob Lim is a public high school teacher, parent, former voting reform activist based in Toronto. And uh, Eugene Erdenshaw is a professor of liberal arts at Seneca College, uh, author of Modeling Evolution, also based in Toronto with his kids. So uh, gentlemen, I wanna thank you all for uh, coming on the program. Well, thanks for having us. All right, well... Um, Thanks for having us, too. All right, well, let's just get in there. Uh, now, Star Wars used to refer to a movie in 1977. The movie was a big deal for me. My parents had just got divorced. 
uh, because we were part of the 1970s divorce wave when everybody was getting divorced to be happen with the times. And uh, my parents were on the cutting edge of that, making yogurt, having brewer's yeast smoothies and getting divorced. And uh, my dad was the one who moved out as, as was done uh, in those times. And um, I was very worried about my relationship with my dad as a four-year-old. And um, one of the first things that really let me know that my dad was going to stick around um, before he later turned against me um, was the trip to Star Wars. It was sitting in those seats and watching a space thing where I knew that my father loved it, I loved it, and it was not something my mom was going to get. Uh, it was such an important moment for me in establishing who I was going to be as a person. And so I wanted to ask each of you, what's your Star Wars origin myth? What made you a person who started caring about this stuff? Uh, Eugene. Okay, so um, I'm also a child of 70s divorce. Uh, they squeaked it in right before the, the end of the decade. Um, and so... My father lived on the, on the West Coast, and my mother lived with me in Ontario. And um, my early Star Wars memory is um, my mother was a school teacher. She actually taught my kindergarten class. Um, but then because she had to work later, uh, I had an aunt who lived in Whitby, where we lived at the time. And I would go over to my aunt's house after, uh, after school, and my mother was still working and doing things. And they had a Betamax player. And one of the like five movies that they have was Star Wars. And I watched it literally every day after school for like a year was the original Star Wars. And I'm pretty sure that Empire Strikes Back was the first movie I saw in theaters. Pretty sure. And yeah, I mean, I actually hadn't been thinking about the kind of like father stuff issues, but I mean, I think definitely with my kids, right? <laughs> the, the family aspects of the story are part of what really connect, right? With, 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 with kids who maybe don't get all the, the nuances of everything, right? And I think with me, well, I mean, Luke Skywalker in the first movie, you know, his dad isn't there, my dad wasn't there, right? And then of course, there's this sort of, sort of sinister evil father that comes along. So sure, I mean, that, that was probably some part of the, the motivation for me. But I mean, definitely just like I was a kid who like, Star Wars was one of my main things. It was like Star Wars and like King Arthur were like sort of the two things when I was like five and six, I was James, uh, what uh, what pulled you in? Well, I'm joining the club, boys, because I am also the product of uh, a 70s divorce. Um, and believe it or not, I was born in Oshawa. Uh, so Whitby was really close by. But it, it was early on. I was, I was four years old when Star Wars first came out. And I remember going. It was a big deal. I was going to go with my dad and his new partner and their kids to a four-feature marathon at a local uh, drive-in movie. And we were finally going to see... Oh no, the internet from Wells has uh, crapped out. So we're going to rejoin James uh, in a moment. Rob, we're going to go to you. What's your, uh, what was oh, your cognate? Sorry. Uh, sorry, James, we've switched to Rob. We'll be back to you. Uh, no problem. What was your cognate Hi. experience? So <laughs> as far as Star Wars goes, my first memory of Star Wars isn't actually a memory of the film at all. Uh, it was more a memory of going to see a film at a ballroom in a golf club in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia and ha seeing like all these um, ballroom chairs stacked together in neat rows and seeing 
I think, a movie for, if not the actual first time, one of the very early times. And I think they must have shown it on a projector or something. And, I mean, my memories of Star Wars growing up weren't of seeing Star Wars in the film theater because I don't think I ever went to one when I was in Malaysia, but rather of, like, stacks of VHS videos that were watched and rewatched. Uh, my, my dad told me at some point it was really good and exciting, and this is something that I was absolutely fascinated by. But for me, a big part of the experience now is trying to share Star Wars with my kids. And again, it's not really something I'm doing for the most part in the movie theater. I watched the Star Wars movies curled up with my daughter on the tablet and on the couch. Uh, I, I watched the Clone Wars cartoons with my, with my younger son. Uh, and, and so for me, it's... It's very much in the present. I'm interested in Star Wars now because it's something that I'm culturally transmitting. So uh, just, uh, James, finish off the, the, the story of the myth before your phone attacked you. <laughs> yeah, sure, thank you. <clears throat> so like I say, I was a product of uh, 70s divorce family. Uh, still remain close, but uh, going to the movies with my father was a huge deal for me. I was four years old when Star Wars was first released, and we actually got a chance to go see it at a local drive-in movie theater. Uh, for at a four feature marathon but the problem was I was four years old and I fell asleep before Star Wars actually came on <laughs> slept through it woke up just after the opening credits of the Phantom of the Paradise if you uh, remember that cult movie uh, from a long time ago that was a spin on the Phantom of the Opera but um, Paul Williams was the star of it but anyway um, it, it for so for days afterwards I thought that this had been Star Wars so that was my opening Star Wars stories that I went back to my daycare or wherever it was that I was being looked after and thought that I had seen Star Wars and then very rudely was uh, made aware that no, in fact, I hadn't. Saw it very quickly after that, became obsessed with it, uh, and then it just sort of became a big part of my life to the point where I've actually uh, worked professionally with a, with a couple of the people who have worked on Star Wars. So it's, uh, it's been, always been there as a bit of my lodestone. So um, in many ways, it's almost as though we just asked somebody why did you write Fight Club? Uh, it's uh, that this is an the answers you all gave about Star Wars are equally good for answering that question. Now, um, all of you have spoken to how Star Wars exists in the present for you and how that that contrasts um, with these earlier myths and experiences. So, um, Eugene, you were nodding when Rob was talking about the experience of sharing this with your uh, your kids. So, what has that been like? It's, it's been a kind of a roller coaster, really. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I showed uh, A New Hope to Vera, my older daughter, when she was four. Um, and she really, really liked it. And the, but the thing that she liked about it was the same thing that she liked about King Arthur stuff when I introduced her to that. It, it was the, like, the, the sort of the relationship between the child and the parent, right? The missing parent and, like, Obi-Wan and... And, and who's Luke's father and all that kind of thing, right? And she really liked, uh, she really liked that. And she, Empire Strikes Back was too scary for her, but um, not, not because of people dying, right? It's just a scene where Vader and the Emperor are plotting about killing Luke, right? That idea of like people like sort of scheming to hurt someone she likes, like from a distance was like really freaky. But, but then she liked, um, she liked, uh, uh, Return of the Jedi Soma, but it was really a new hope that she that she that she enjoyed a lot. And before I could really introduce her to any of the others, 
she decided that Star Wars was a boy thing and she stopped being in interested in it for like a year, right? Because there weren't enough female characters. And she got it back into it via Lego Star Wars. And so I've been reintroducing her to the other movies. She really likes Phantom Menace, right? Because uh, I think, um, I think because she likes kind of Anakin, she likes the, the, the lightsaber fights. Um, but uh, she didn't really like, um, uh, what is it, Force Awakens that much? Like, she, I think she sort of thought it was okay, but she really didn't feel like revisiting it. And I haven't tried to bring The Last, Last Jedi or, or, the, or the, the, the number nine yet. Uh, and I, I'm kind of wondering whether I should even bother at this point. Right, so so just switching gears now, um, uh, Rob Eugene had stories of uh, making Star Wars intersect with their family lives. You've done something a little more improbable and made it intersect with your professional life. What exactly did you do? Oh, you're speaking <clears throat> yeah. to me, yes. Um, so, um, well, it's always been sort of one of the catalysts for me being interested in filmmaking, but even before that, I trained as a theater actor and director and then i wound up uh working at barkerville historic town and park where i currently work and met a with a guy named charles ross and charles went from barkerville on the road with a show that he wrote called the one man star wars trilogy in which he acts out all of the original four five and six in an hour no sets or costumes or anything it's just him in a black jumpsuit uh, with some knee pads and elbow pads and it's like when we were kids acting out star wars with our friends or to our parents down in the basement he makes all the sounds and everything else. And he started it out as a sort of an underground fringe show that ultimately caught the attention of Lucasfilm. And he thought that they were, they were gonna sue him for, for not uh, seeking out copyright. And in fact, what they did was invite him into the fold and gave a licensing agreement. So now he's legally allowed to, to perform this show all over the world. So for a time I was touring with him, also filming a documentary about the whole process. Um, and we got an opportunity to, to meet and, uh, and work with a number of people associated with Lucasfilm and Star Wars uh, over a number of years. So um, now this, so you're all pretty materially entangled in all this. Now, when I, I had a, I have not seen all of the movies. Um, couldn't bring myself to see episode three. Couldn't bring myself to see episode nine. We had a review of episode nine uh, by Sean Verkoviak on this show a few months ago, uh, in which he said wonderfully disparaging things about the film. Um, my, but I have loved some Star Wars properties. I absolutely loved Rogue One. I, I thought it was like the best thing that had happened to the series in years. Um, so if we bracket the original three and their flaws and complexities and whatever, and we think about all of the different tributes that have been made to them on TV, in prior episodes, subsequent episodes. Um, I'd be interested in hearing from each of you, what is the best tribute to the original three that shows up later in the Star Wars over? If, uh, if you would like me to go first. Yeah, um, go. I would say my top two um, are um, the Clone Wars animated series, um, as well as the Mandalorian now. Uh, I think uh, what's happening on Disney Plus with the Mandalorian is, is bringing back some old school Star Wars feelings uh, in a way that I haven't felt probably since Rogue One, actually, because I, I also agree that that was a pretty fine film. 
there's a pejorative expression that's used uh, among role-playing gamers who uh, talk about the loss of a sense of wonder uh, because it's such a cliche. Everybody's trying to recover the D&D table they were at when they were 13. And, um, but it sounds like you are making a little bit of a sense of wonder argument. So what are the things you saw in those two series that you didn't see elsewhere? Well, I think, um, A, the focus on slightly different stories, although, you know, Anakin is a, is a big part of the Clone Wars um, saga. It's, it, you, you really, the, the way that they chose to, um, you know, look at not only uh, another group, various groups of rebels, but also looking at the clone troopers and seeing, you know, where they were going, bringing in sort of a bit more of the epic nature of Star Wars that we all sort of imagined in our, you know, when we were filling in the gaps, like I felt that Clone Wars really fills in the gaps in a way that makes the, the, the sequel trilogy or the pre prequel trilogy better for having watched Clone Wars. And I think with Mandalorian, it's kind of the same thing. Like we are seeing some very familiar things, but they're, they're attacking it in a, in a new and fresh way. They've also just got some incredibly talented writers. And given the fact that um, it's the same showrunner on, or at least major creative influence on both Clone Wars and Mandalorian. That would kind of make sense. That said, I'm also a huge fan of The Last Jedi. I might be really unpopular at this table for saying that. I think that that actually was, the, was one of the first things to instill a real sense of wonder in me in that I felt much like what I felt when I saw Empire Strikes Back is that I, I finally felt that I didn't know where this story was going in a way that number nine completely destroyed. Right. Uh, we'll get back to that conflict later. Rob, uh, what, uh, what would you say is the best of the, uh, of the sequels or tributes in expressing what was in the first three? I think there are two that really stand out for me, and they're both video game experiences. Uh, the first one is X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. That, those, they're, they're two games that came out back in the 90s, and I think they were kind of mirror images of each other. But that was, that was a, a very simple way of them to kind of showcase this broader world and extended universe of Star Wars that, that you know, I kind of had ex ex was exposed through the role-playing game. And the video games themselves, they really gave you this feeling of jumping into a cockpit and taking on these missions and flying around at Starfighter and blowing up uh, Star Destroyers. And the other video game, I think that really stands out for me, which a, a deeply flawed game, by the way, I, I would not recommend anyone in your audience to go out, download this and try it. Again, another ancient game from probably around 2004, 2005 uh, was the Rebellion video game, which kind of was a big picture strategic game that put you either in charge of the Empire or the Rebellion, and you kind of had to dispatch fleets and send agents on missions. Uh, it really ca captured that feeling of, you know, looking at this thing on a large scale. And uh, Eugene? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to second both of those video games, by the way. I spent an enormous amount of time playing TIE Fighter, and, and I also, I think, was one of the few dozen people who mastered the, the interface enough of, of uh, uh, Rebellion, or whatever it was called, to like play through it some. Um, for, for me, though, I, I would have to say Rogue One, like with, with, um, with just the sort of perspective that it gave on like, sacrifice on people who are kind of like not the chosen ones kind of making hard choices behind the scenes like i 
I mean, part of this obviously is, you know, I'm older now, right? So a little bit more nuance, a little bit more kind of like gestures towards something that that is, you know, kind of like politically realistic in a way, right? But just see, seeing that like the dirty work of the rebellion behind the scenes and like, you know, people having to like make tough choices and stuff. And then the sacrifice at the end, you know, for me, actually, I was, after I saw that, I was like, this is going to be amazing, right? Like they, they've, they've got it, right? Like they can do so many interesting things. Now. So that was one. And the, the other thing that I would say is like, if, if you put together some of the stuff from Force Awakens and some of the stuff from Last Jedi, that again kind of woke for me like a real sense of like, okay, yes, they're like exploring what it is to be a Jedi more and like what the Force is. And I thought that like the, the thing from Force Awakens, like most of it was pretty disposable for me, right? But, but the portrayal of Kylo Ren in Force Awakens, I thought was like so smart, like just so interesting, right? Um, and then a lot of how that developed in Last Jedi, I thought was really cool, right? And so that, that to me was, was interesting because we had, you know, a kind of a more developed villain who was not just you know the emperor cackling evilly right or like dark wall being like i'm bad right so th th that would be what i would point out yeah so um uh certainly for me um i thought rogue one was a hugely important in intervention especially because it was disney i felt that it was incredibly important to tell children stories where you could die um where death was a part of life um that that was something that it wasn't just the Star Wars movies. All movies lost that in the eighties, right? That after the Second World War, it was really important for some of the heroic people to die I, because it was illustrative of heroism. Can I just and, interject yeah, for yeah. a second? Um, with regards to the whole thing about people dying in films in the eighties, I think I, I think Eugene will probably agree with me from this. But my I, the first sort of children's film that I really remember seeing somebody die in was Transformers the movie. <laughs> and that came across as, as a major shift in my perspective about like, you know, films and the role of heroism in films that like heroes could actually die. But anyway, sorry. And that could, no, that's a very good point. And it's, it's, it's the right thing to happen. It's like, yes, it's important. That was, that was not a bad answer. That was not a sacrifice in vain. That was, that was constituent. So I, I think that, that um, I really have to concur with that. But when I sort of listen to uh, the other two perspectives about what the essence of the original series was and how you could return to it, um, both with Rob's video games and with James's cartoons, it seems to me that what you were saying was what the center, the center of this became the Manichaean nature of the universe. It became the fact that this was a dualist universe, that good and evil, light and dark, were principles hardwired into the cosmos itself and were imminent then in any narrative, any story. And I feel like um, a lot of people got into Game of Thrones because it looked like Game of Thrones had grabbed that ball and then it kind of dropped it. Right, but when you're sort of at the height of Game of Thrones, you're getting the same Manichaean cosmology that you know you associate with Zoroastrianism, Magianism, Manichaeism, but is really dropped out of modern cosmologies. And it seems like the fact that there was, I mean, in 
in, uh, in The Force Awakens, I love the fact they just told the same story again. It's like, of course they're always building the Death Star. <laughs> it's axiomatic. It's a property of the universe that if too much wealth concentrates in a place, somebody's going to build the Death Star. It's just how things go. Um, so I, I, uh, I thought that the Manichaeism was interesting. And we sort of talked about Manichaeism. We've talked about family. We've talked about sacrifice. What are the other big themes that uh, we take away from this sort of sprawling, incoherent set of stories? Well, I think the just a general combating of personal fears. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the story and these kind of heroes journey stories resonate so strongly with me personally is because I'm by nature a pretty terrified person. <laughs> and But I have a lot of uh, ambition, ambitious things that I want to do. And so dealing with that internal sense of I need to step on this road I don't want to step on this road. Everything is telling me to just stay home on Tatooine and not go fight for the rebellion. There is something about that message of, of hope that goes, you know, doesn't really matter. You, you'll go through something, you'll go through hardships, but if you persevere and stay on the path, you'll continue. That's been a real, a real, uh, a, a real beneficial lesson for me throughout my life. So I, I feel like I connect to that message for sure. I think one of the things that you know you it's it's not consistently found in the star wars canon but i think it's found in the most powerful moments of it is this i is this kind of like sort of almost pacifistic code that's associated with the light side right like some of the most i think surprising but important bits in it are like when you know the emperor is begging basically Luke to kill him and Luke will not, right? Uh, and is willing to die rather than betray his principles, right? So, so the sort of when the Jedi code is, is handled well and it's actually making the characters like do kind of counterintuitive like things that almost seem, seem crazy, like, and, and it's not always portrayed that way, but when it is, I think that is very moving. I think that, that the, the idea of having a code that, that, is extremely demanding and and but is ne like necessary to actually like achieve real change and avoid sort of like this cycle of violence or falling into darkness or whatever. I, I think that's really strong. Uh, in contrast to that, I think I've really have to stick up for the idea of rebellion that you have these band of ragtag uh, rebels who are standing up and fighting against this unjust government and who to a large extent are doomed because of the lack of resources that they have. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a, it's a very good tension. And uh, what all three of these point towards is what I was hoping they would, which is the original problematic partnership that created Star Wars, which was later re-described as episode four, right? George Lucas had an encounter with this very problematic literary theorist, Joseph Campbell. Uh, Campbell today is known primarily for his anti-Semitism, but I think that's a little bit unfair to Campbell in that the world right now is full of anti-Semites who are known for other shit, so why not him? Uh, so, so on that basis, right, you've got one of you described the hero's journey, 
right? Classic Campbell idea. Another, you talked about chivalry, the way this code constructs virtuous action. And then we have this third component of this lost cause rebellion that is being fought despite the fact that there's no material case for it. There's only a moral case for it. All of these things orbit around Joseph Campbell going, look, why don't we tell the simplest hero legend imaginable and we just tell it in a kind of drag by doing it in space? Um, if, we, if we sort of look at it for, from that perspective, how do you guys feel about Campbell's legacy? So, um, and, and how important is it in understanding what came after it? Well, it's still, oh, go ahead. I mean, a lot of pop culture, right, is this weird historical accident, right? Like the fact that Star Wars was like the first property that really did a really good job of something like this has meant that, yeah, there's been 40 years of it and it's become like integral to people's childhood and all that kind of thing, right? I think that in a certain way, this sort of like simplified hero's journey was kind of like low hanging fruit in the way that Marvel has managed to kind of like monetize it and like turn it into this like churning cycle of one more thing that's doing the exact same thing over and over again, right? To, to me, makes me less interested in that as the key to Star Wars, right? And more think about, well, what are the kind of the weirder aspects of it? But I mean, I think that, that like that, that was what Star Wars did was what explained why it exploded the way that it did, you know? Um, and then became like this, this foundation that is up there with like Lord of the Rings as like the basis for so much later work, like either reacting to it or, or ripping it off or whatever. Yeah, and I think too, like definitely Campbell's anti-Semitism is a huge problem for me. Um, I don't read Campbell. Um, I reference him a couple of times, usually in conjunction with Star Wars. But one of the reasons why I think that it, it still kind of works for me in that idea of the hero's journey has more to do with the pattern that's being described rather than, than the work that's describing it, right? So the fact is, is that, that, yes, in this case, Lucas purposely used Campbell's work to, to sort of use those ideas of the monomyth and, and create the, the plot. But I think other works like Lord of the Rings and, and you know, basically adventure stories from the, from, from the beginning of time are using that pattern unconsciously as much as they are consciously. So I think that it's still very relevant. That, that story pattern is relevant to Star Wars and specifically because of Lucas's association with Campbell. But I, 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 I can totally divorce Campbell from that, that conversation for me. In a sense, the quality of Campbell's scholarship, the fact that it is descriptive, allows you to distance it from Campbell. It's a paradox of the, of the problem with, with a theorist like that. I wrestle with the same stuff with Samuel Huntington. Rob? I find what's really interesting uh, with regards to this uh, issue of Campbell is that Campbell kind of gave a formula for making for telling stories and at the same time like a lot of films are today are trying to are people build them around formulas because they're trying to find formulas that work so that you have these films that can consistently make money uh, I, I feel like the modern 
Camp Camp Elian Moto Myth is really uh, comes from this book called uh, what was, was it Save the Cat something like that, which kind of outlines scene by scene and beat by beat what an effective movie should look like, and we see these same beats repeated again and again in films, uh, and and we also see time and time again people trying to recreate the magic of Star Wars and to recreate another enormously profitable property that you know you, you can generate uh, a cycle of like nine movies and countless tv shows around I, I can definitely see that the new dune movie that's coming out is another attempt to try and create a, a, a long-running uh, multiple movie franchise of course it remains to be seen whether that'll actually happen so now we've got we've got five minutes and we have really not hit what I would call the gospel moment in the Star Wars uh, saga, because it's like The Force Awakens is the gospel of Mark, and then somebody goes, well, this is bullshit. I gotta, this is all being said the wrong way. I'm gonna write the gospel of Matthew. And, and then there's some effort on the part of the gospel of Matthew's author, to the uh, gospel of Mark's author to be a little bit conciliatory and write the gospel of Luke at the end. What do you, what do you make each of you, the argument that the two creative voices in those last three films are having, what's their argument? Why does it matter? Because they're clearly fighting with each other about what it all meant. I, I'm, I really like The Last Jedi in a way. Um, but the more sort of distance I have from it, the more that I think that what it was trying to do was just too crazy, right? <laughs> like just too, too over the top because like it's, it's just such a thorough deconstruction of, of everything heroic, right? Like especially the, 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 the story with Finn, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, and Poe where they, they are just like, screwing everything up because they think they're heroes right and and so many people die because these idiots you know think that they are in an action movie and think that they're special right but no they if it would have been much better if they'd just been sensible and not had a crazy plan like you always get in these movies right because the crazy plan screws them all right but it's it's so dark like the more that you think about it that i i, I can sort of understand why someone would feel that they they couldn't like run with this right um, I mean, I wish they, they had, I wish they'd managed to sort of redeem some of the heroic things that they could find in The Last Jedi and actually like do something interesting that was satisfying, but you know. There we go, James. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I, I th that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of The Last Jedi is because I felt that it, it really spoke to this generation of filmmakers in particular, but obviously audiences too in that there, because when, when the original trilogy came out, we did have a rosier look. I mean, yes, we were dealing with, you know, for the most part, the eighties and economic downturn and, and, and fear of nuclear Armageddon, but there was still this sense that we were right. And we had this feeling of, of heroism within ourselves as North Americans, I believe at that time I did as a kid. Whereas this generation, I'm not sure has that outlook on themselves um, just based on everything that's going on in the world. So this idea of deconstructing that hero was really exciting to me. And I also felt that The Last Jedi really solidified for me 
the story of Kylo Ren and that was really giving me the Anakin Skywalker story that I had wanted from the prequels and didn't get. So uh, I, I think that there was something really magic about that. But yes, it definitely was tearing down what had come before. I just wish I could have seen where it would have eventually gone. Rob. It's kind of uh, interesting that you, it's interesting that you bring up this language of gospels because we actually have an apocrypha in that Colin Trevorrow, who was originally slated to direct episode nine, uh, released a script and, and along with some concept art of what he wanted to do. And there are a number of people out there who actually say it's better than what we got. Uh, in that, you know, at least we have Finn playing a much more active role, leading this rebellion of former stormtroopers against uh, against the First Order. And as far as The Last Jedi, I, I feel like I'm, I'm the dissenting opinion on The Last Jedi, because I, I feel it really undercuts the character of Finn. I feel like, I feel like Finn... You know, he goes off in a wild goose chase. He doesn't accomplish very much. And as the black character, I, I kind of want to see him do something more active and more substantial and something much more exciting in the film. So, um, I mean, uh, just to, uh, to offer my, my perspective on this is I thought, you know, if they had screened The Last Jedi in the 50s, or the early 60s, all the reviewers would have gone, well, this is a know-nothing movie. This is an anti-Masonic film. Back when the Freemasons still ran a lot of stuff, people would go like, this is just like a frontal assault on the Freemasons. And I got to tell you, I got some Freemasons in my Facebook feed, and they went apeshit over episode eight in ways that no other human did. Um, and so that actually helped me to see what's going on there. I think you have two different theories of what the Jedi are. One is that they are possessors of a secret knowledge and a discipline, that they're Krishna-like heroes, that they know a yoga, that they're a special order because of the knowledge they contain. And episode eight makes the opposite argument. It goes, no, the Jedi are axiomatic. They're part of the Manichaean cosmos. The Jedi will always be called forth into being even if they lose all of their knowledge because what makes them Jedi is a property of the universe, not a, not a set of stored social information. And I, I have to say that that was compelling to me. That was, it was a central debate. I felt there always was in the show just as there was a central debate between heredity and randomness about where these attributes showed up. And the, the, and the effect that, and I just want to save Finn's actions in the movie. They don't produce the outcome he wants. What they produce is the last scene, which are all those little kids who have encountered heroic people. And not because they know a thing or they've inherited knowledge or they've inherited genes, but they see in that heroism that's near them a different way of being in the world. So anyway, that's why I'm continuing to boycott episode nine. Uh, <laughs> some final words from everybody before uh, we have the rest of our, uh, our day. Well, just, just kind of my final words and, and partly sort of putting another perspective on, on what we were just talking about. The, the disappointing thing I find about 
a lot of the Star Wars things, and particularly the last three movies, is that as much as I can appreciate them in a way, I don't think that they will speak to kids the same way that the original trilogy spoke to us when we were young, you know? Like, the, the, it's very different, like, Han Solo getting killed than it is Obi-Wan getting killed, right? And as for The Last Jedi, right? Like, I have no idea how that's going to go down when I try and show that to my six-year-old, but I'm not anticipating great things, you know? So I think that's kind of a shame, right? That the, you know, I at least thought when the, when the Force Awakens came out that this would be kind of like a new trilogy for a new generation. I kind of don't feel like it is now. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree with you there. Um, although, at least from my personal experience, I'm not sure the original trilogy does that for kids anymore either. Because I have also shared the experience of, of sitting my daughters down because they know that Star Wars is a huge part of my life and uh, it's tattooed on my body. Um, and they, they decided finally one day that, that this was the day that they were going to watch Star Wars. We got five minutes in, one of my daughters turned to me and said, where are the Angry Birds? Because that's how they had known Star Wars was Angry Birds Star Wars on my phone when they were four, right? So um, they've, they've said that they would try again, but uh, it just didn't do it for them. So I don't know. And uh, last word to Rob. It's interesting. I was thinking about this recently. And when my daughter first started watching uh, A New Hope, her first comment was, where are all the girls? Uh, because quite a long time goes by before we're introduced to Princess Leia uh, in person. Well, I guess we see her uh, in the, uh, a little bit in the beginning. Um, but, you know, that was a big question she had. But the reality is, for a new generation of Star Wars fans, the defining character of the series is, isn't Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker or even Rey. The defining character is Ahsoka Tano because... Given that she's been in, in Rebels, she's been in Clone Wars, uh, she's going to be in Mandalorian next season, we're, we're, she's actually had more hours of screen time than any of the other characters in the trilogy. And she is a very compelling female character. Well, on that note, uh, I think this was the just way for this to end. I have no idea who that character is. Now there's a thing I have no idea about, and that's the end of our Star Wars panel. Thanks a bunch, guys. Let's do this next year. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Bye. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.